Hi there, I'm Danny Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here on this podcast, my co-host Ella Gilbert and I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer. My co-host Ella is a climate scientist. We both work at the British Antarctic Survey, and this is our space to talk with people who are doing stuff in climate, interesting stuff in climate. For this episode, we talked with Alice Bell. Alice Bell is the co-director of the climate change charity called Possible. Although in July of this year, she'll be taking on the new role as a head of climate and health policy at Wellcome. We talked about Alice's book called Our Biggest Experiment, which is about the history of the climate crisis. I had a chance to read through it before the interview. It's really good, really, really detailed, really paints a picture as well. The, the writing is really good and clear and descriptive and really evoked and kind of clearly laid out all of this history going back uh, you know, many, many decades. Yeah, so Alice has been with Welcome, sorry, Alice has been with Possible for seven years as the, and most recently serving as the co-director, like I mentioned. We talked about really a lot in this episode. I want to get you to that just, just as quickly as we can. I don't have too much more that I need to mention. I just wanted to highlight some of the stuff we talk about. We talked about, like I said, Alice's work at Possible. We talked about misconceptions around the popularity of wind power. Turns out it actually is really powerful. Uh, powerful. It actually is really popular, uh, despite what you might hear. We did talk about the war in Ukraine. We talked about how important it is to remove dependency on gas and move towards clean local energy. We talked about the cost of living crisis, fuel poverty, maladaptation, and also the importance of making just energy transitions, fair energy transitions. There's links between fossil fuel technology and colonialism, and we talk about that. Alice goes into that a bit in her book, all kinds of stuff. And uh, Alice talks about her experience in academia and journalism and in campaigning, so we get to know her a little bit. And really, um, I haven't listened back to it since we recorded it, but I remember really enjoying this conversation. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good time. So I hope you enjoy it. Okay, yeah, you can find Alice on Twitter at Alice Bell. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean. You can find uh, Ella at Dr. Underscore Gilbs with a Z. All right, yeah, I think that's it. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. And uh, we are at a frequency of about one a month. That's what we're looking at for the next uh, next few months here, especially. Okay, let's go ahead and get into this conversation with Alice Bell. Here we go. Tell us about Possible. Can you tell me, tell us more about it? So, yeah, I co-run this climate charity, uh, Possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it was founded in kind of on the run-up to the Copenhagen Climate Talks, which is like almost olden days now, mm-hmm. <laughs> 2009. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at the time, anyone who was interested in climate change, it was really gloom and doom and we're all going to die, which is a totally appropriate response to climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, but people didn't feel like there was any hope and that was kind of stifling people's ability to act like 
despair yes. can only get you so far. Yeah. And so a charity called 1010 was founded um, asking people to make a commitment to cut their carbon emissions by 10% by 2010 as an easy first step. And the mm-hmm. idea was, and it wasn't just lots of individuals doing something, it was that they were doing it collectively and that it would yeah. be a way of showing, well, we can take a first step and also saying to the politicians who were going to Copenhagen, we're all doing our stuff and we can do that 10% easy, but if we want to do that other 90%, you need to change the policy to help us mm. do it. So it was a, it was a political statement as much as anything else. Um, and it was very much about giving people hope and something practical to do. And it stuck around after Copenhagen and after 2010. Um, and we rebranded it as possible because we decided you couldn't be called 1010 in 2020. <laughs> but we've kept that kind of practical approach. And it's a stubborn optimism. I mean, we're not happy about climate change. We're not sort of going around going, oh, it's all going to be fine. We're Mm. I mean, if anything, we're you know quite depressed about it most of the time, like most people who work on climate change. Um, but yeah. we try and give people uh, a sort of sense of that that light at the end of the tunnel and show the opportunities that are there for us to take action and make sure that people are aware of them and uh, fight for them to, to exist. So one of the campaigns that we've been working on for years is to be able to build onshore wind in the UK country that invented the wind turbine it is almost impossible to build wind turbines and certainly in mm. england it's pretty difficult to do it in scotland and wales mm. um and government looks like maybe in the next few weeks uh might be shifting on that a bit but we've been pushing this for, for years you know this is a, a easy way for us to decarbonize it's an easy way for local communities to be able to be involved in decarbonization and have a to, to profit from it to to steer you know where wind mm. farms are built and things and so that's sort of work we've been doing for for years and we work across things on transport in the air and on the ground uh in energy anything from heat pumps to wind turbines to mm. solar powered railways uh, and also some stuff on eating and buying we're just about to launch um, a fixing factory uh, which will be a pilot for a sort of alternative shop on the high street where you can go and get things fixed and learn about fixing things to yeah. help uh, change people's approach to uh, consumption right instead of just waiting for something to break and getting a new one and just kind of throwing something away as soon as it becomes you know less than uh, perfect <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. On the wind farm thing, I got to admit, I wasn't aware that it was difficult to build wind turbines here. And I think my perception is probably skewed by the fact that we've got a huge wind farm not too far away. And then there was another one that I'd noticed took the train down to London over the weekend, and there was another big wind farm. So but that's just two places, you know, ra- around here. I, I wasn't aware there was a larger scale kind of challenge in building them and deploying them so there are some but they're ones that were generally built before uh, a block got put on building them there was the election that the conservative party didn't think they were going to win you know there was the coalition government with the lib dems and then they they had another election and they thought oh we'll probably have another coalition and so they put lots of things in the manifesto include this is one of the reasons we had brexit because they said right we'll have a brexit manifesto if we win didn't think they were going to win and then they did and then we had to have the brexit manifesto one of the other things they put in there was a ban on onshore wind Uh, and it was done because they said it was unpopular which was total fake news i mean it's straightforward fake news um we did some polling but it's powerful like when people when politicians stand up there and say wind is unpopular people believe them Uh, and lots of of journalists uh, and other policymakers believe this idea that wind is unpopular despite the fact that there was government polling year after year that showed that wind was incredibly popular i mean politicians would kill for the kind of approval ratings that onshore wind got so we Gosh. did some polling asking people if they liked wind and also if they thought other people like wind and we mm-hmm. found that lots of people 
just had this thing where like, oh, well, I like onshore wind, but I know nobody else does. And you're like, no, everybody <laughs> thinks that. <laughs> um, and I think one of the things that my colleagues have managed to do in the last few years with our onshore wind campaign is just push against that narrative, at least. So people, now I'm seeing, actually, it's one of the things that's interesting with people talking about some different ideas about energy with the gas crisis the last few weeks is yeah. that um we're seeing more people go yes wind is popular and i'm seeing like mainstream politicians saying that like we've right we've changed the narrative good <laughs> all it takes um, is a war in ukraine eh i know i know oh. it's sort of like oh well, now we can finally build some wind. Like, we shouldn't it's the cheapest form of electricity generation in this country right. and we haven't been able to build it and with those wind farms that have already been built one of the problems is some of them are going to need repowering they're going to yes. need to be rebuilt because you just you need to do that every now and again yeah. and more and more people were starting to worry that we wouldn't be able to even we wouldn't be able to repower as well as the fact that we weren't putting more wind on I mean, in the uk we've done amazing work on offshore wind like we have driven a lot of the innovation there and it's from, a lot of our energy comes from offshore wind and we'll often see headlines like this weekend x amount of our electricity came from wind but so much yeah. of that is is offshore and we should be totally investing in offshore it's great but also yeah. taking advantage of onshore which is a smaller tech it's a different tech it's more amenable to community ownership which is one of the reasons mm. why we're really into it oh yeah i mean right now it's like a windy day outside up here in cambridge and like we should be taking advantage of this we should be pulling all this out of the out of the atmosphere all this momentum oh yeah um, well like yeah. one of the big cost one of the things that's challenging with the gas crisis is the nhs take a lot of gas from gazprom so there was a statement uh, recently from the health minister saying the NHS can't buy their gas from Gazprom. But it, I mean, the gas prices are going to be huge for the NHS. It's a huge strain on NHS budget. And yeah. for the last few years, we could have been building a wind turbine for every hospital. You could just have one next to a hospital. Not everywhere. Like it's not necessarily going to work in like St Mary's in Paddington. But there's mm. lots of hospitals where you could have a wind turbine that directly powers the the hospital and like giving yeah. us giving the nhs energy independence it would be so great and we just haven't been able to do it there'll be loads of people who want to do it for, for years um so i'm hopeful in the next in the next couple of years actually that will open up and we'll we'll see more wind being utilized yeah yeah hopefully so i mean i've got to admit we we don't usually do a ton of like super current events because this episode might not come out for for a little while but um it's hard not to talk about you know the the horrible war in Ukraine and how that has kind of got people thinking about, oh, how do we get off of gas? How do we get independent? And this is something people have been saying for a long time is that the push towards, you know, clean energy, local kind of energy, like we're talking about wind generation. Um, it's, there's a, uh, there's kind of a safety factor to it. There's kind of a, a less dependence on you know, a, a state like Russia, which is, you know, showing, what it's capable of right now so yeah it's it's kind of too bad that we didn't start a couple of decades ago but you know now i guess is a the perennial can, can problem have the with climate change if only we yeah. started mm. several decades ago yeah, yeah. well yeah. i mean and these debates were actually were starting before the war in ukraine because there were problems mm -hmm. with gas prices before that and the cost of living crisis yeah. and i was already doing rounds of media a couple of weeks ago where i was finishing the day just feeling really really depressed about bluntly how many people in this country are going to die next winter because of cold homes like mm. there's a scandal how many people died pre-pandemic like the number of ex what, excess deaths this phrase that we're now used to for pandemic but um mm. you know the number of those that could be attributable to the fact that people couldn't afford their heating in the winter is just it was a public health scandal before this the, the pandemic and i was just worrying already about what that would be like in you know winter 2022 and then with the gas prices on top of that i was getting really upset and now i'm just 
I, it's really hard to even think about. It's going to be a really, really tough winter. And there's some things that we can probably do in prep for that. And there's definitely things we have to do this summer so that we don't have that in 2023, 2024, because it's not going to go away. No, um, no, no. Yeah. I, I hope we can. And I, I mean, it. I, I guess it goes without saying that, I mean, the, the war is really horrible in Ukraine and, you know, I, I hope that it's obviously over as quickly as possible. I don't know if it's really even, you know, it's good to say that, but presumably it goes without saying. Um, when I say it's not going to know. go away, I'm hopeful that the war might calm down. I mean, the problem of yeah. energy isn't going to go away. Um, yeah, yeah. That comes from so many different directions. And ultimately, yeah. we have to get off fossil fuels. Yeah, that's right. No, but I wanted to go back. You mentioned something about that. Uh, Ella and I talked about pragmatic optimism, which I think we kind of both settled on as we sort of lean that way we sort of lean in the way of like well there's kind of no point in giving up we might as well keep trying <laughs> and we might as well like try to make things better um and might as well try to continue to have these these conversations and things so i appreciated that you're saying that that's where possible kind of sits as well and that you know that there's no magic solution but the the gloom and doom message is kind of uh there, there's only so far you can go with that it really can lead people into this place where they're just not feeling motivated to, to do anything because it feels so the whole climate crisis feels so dark and, and horrible and, and impossible. And that connects to something that I talk about it like a lot on the podcast. So I should probably stop bringing it up and find a new thing to bring up. But I've been thinking uh, I've been reading the, some work by Mika Tosca, who she points to the fact that we kind of have this lack of imagination and also um, like, how do we picture this, this future, how do we envision like what this greener future is going to look like? And it sounds like possible does some of that work as, as well and kind of mapping out, you know, what would the transition actually look like and what is this cleaner world? Can you share with us any kind of any of those visions? Yeah, and we of those, do quite like... a lot of what we call visioning work, partly because we think it's really important that a diversity of people are involved in that because like, I, th I mean, I, I spent a lot of the last couple of years writing this book on the history of the climate crisis. And one of the yeah. things I really took from that is how bad at thinking about the future we are and how we leave thinking about the future to a small number of tech people who go, look, this is the future, buy this new technology. And that's a very limited group of people to be imagining the future. Now, like people have been talking about this for years. You've got things like the Afrofuturism movement helping to diversify ideas of sci-fi and everything. But like on a day-to-day, -day, like what will I, what will our cities look like kind of thing, which doesn't make for a good sci-fi story, like cycling yeah. infrastructure or something we need yeah. to be better at not just thinking ahead but involving more people about that and it's mm. i think it's totally understandable you say to like any general member of the public who's like i care about climate change a bit worried about it they're like well what mm. do you want your heating system to look like and they're like i don't really know what my heating system is like now let alone mm. <laughs> what it might be in the future so mm. it's a difficult thing to do but it's really important that we don't just offer people positive visions but we involve them in building that so um yes. for example some of my colleagues are doing some work in west london at the moment looking at hammersmith bridge that's one of the bridges over the river that's been um they haven't had road uh like uh cars and trucks and buses haven't been able to go over it for the last few years because it was a Victorian bridge and it basically can't take the weight of modern mm. transport systems. Yeah. Um, so they closed it entirely and then they had it just for walkers and cyclists. And there's a big debate locally about whether they spend a huge amount of money strengthening it or it becomes an actual garden bridge where you have lots mm. of trees and it's it's beautiful green bridge, it's painted green. So you could imagine it being a beautiful garden bridge. It's mm. a way over the river that is just for for active travel but under, you know, there's a hospital near there there's businesses lots of people are like this is how I get to work in my car um, and so there's a big debate you know, between the people who use it to travel across and travel through and the people who live there you know there's there's a lot of different arguments there and like people are just a bit stuck about 
what should it be in the future? So one of the things we want to do is not just because we're a climate charity say, oh, you know, shout for the idea of having something other than oil-based transport, but also just involve a range of different people in in that kind of visioning. Like, right, Mm -hmm. you've got, you've inherited this Victorian artifact of this beautiful bridge. What are we going to do with these weird Victorian artifacts that we've inherited? You know, what do you want them Mm -hmm. to look like? Who do you want to have control over them? Who do you want to, who do you want them to best serve? Um, and so we've, in hire, we've hired a, an architectural visualizer. So the sort of person who does those mm. kind of like, what will this new area look like that you get from estate agents? We're like, ah, how can we utilize this kind of visualization oh, yeah. for climate action? So we've now got um, an architectural visualizer in the team who's working. He's going to be working across a load of different projects. But one of the things he's mm. doing is, is looking at like visions for this particular controversy about bridge in West London. Um, and I think I'm really looking forward actually to more stuff that he might do across the country, like in Birmingham and Leeds and, uh, and other, other parts of the country and think like help involve communities in thinking like what do we want the future to look like yeah because it's so much easier to imagine things if you can have some kind of tangible way of visualizing it and you know look at something that gives you ideas and I mean if you see a picture and you're like whoa no that's really not what I want that's also a really helpful reaction because often you you choose something and then you realize oh that's actually not what I really want and that's a really helpful thing to do and plus having you know proper community involvement is is always going to be a good thing rather than having your uh your top down your traditional top down model of this is what's happening what color would you like it to be yeah (laughs) particularly with things like road like how you build cities it's really important that people who would be potentially marginalised by that city structure are really involved and we have their perspectives. Because even if you've got a really expert transport planner, like well, one of the things that an expert transport planner would do would be talk to disabled road users, for example. Or like there's loads of really interesting projects getting young people to talk about what city streets should be like. Because, you know, mm. quite often people think about, oh, the problem of young people hanging around the streets. You're like, well, young people like to hang in the streets. How can we build cities that work for young mm. people? Like, the, you know, longstanding issues about how cities might be built in a way that alienate women and to do with how we can better build cities for women's safety. You know, there's all sorts of things that you need to you need to think about when you're you're planning how a city works. And, you know, it, it's very, we often think about how decarbonisation policies are just going to make the world better. Like, we're all told that, oh, the hippies mm. want to tackle climate change and they'll probably make the world better because it'll make everybody healthier. And like, in theory, that could be true. And like most people who do decarbonisation are good people, but like Mm. actually you can tackle climate change and make the world really bad. (laughs) And I think that we need to think about that more and more. Like that IPCC report that just came out, one of the big themes in that was what they called a maladaptation. I was just going to bring that up. (laughs) And I think this is going to be more and more of a theme, like approaches that try and tackle climate change that are just a bit rubbish (laughs) or have ignored whole important swathes of of society or some area of expertise. And I just think that we we need to be better at appreciating that some of these things are just going to be a bit rubbish and that we need to be better at having that conversation to make them less rubbish. And that's why that diversity is so, so crucial because the more voices you have and the more opinions you have, the less likely you are to accidentally produce some maladaptive thing that's good for you know one box but you think about the rest of all of the things you're trying to tackle and it's completely rubbish and also you you know you really need to be strategic about making sure you bring out the marginalized voices because they will be so easily ignored because the world is structured to ignore them so like it is like with low traffic neighborhoods like most of those low those places where we've had sort of traffic easing things have been done 
generally they've worked out pretty well, but it's totally valid that people would be worried that they would be used as a way of gentrifying an area. Like I don't, I don't think most of them have been, but I think that's totally plausible they could be. And it's totally rational that people would be skeptical of them for that reason. And we need to keep an eye on the fact that they, they could be used in that way. Like we could just end up with creating nice little bits of the city that are very quiet and pleasant and then bits that are very, very polluted. And I, I think yeah. that that kind of inequality, not just about climate impact, but about how we tackle climate change um it could it could be increasingly a problem like in the next decade or so we really yeah. really need to keep an eye on it i've got to admit what comes up what comes to mind when i hear you say that i remember talking with a family member many years ago a few years ago now and they were very angry about the idea of closing coal mines for example and they were very angry about it because they were saying you know, there's loads of people who their whole careers and their whole working life has been, you know, in this industry. And I think what they were trying to express to me was like a fear that, well, this industry will just get shut down and the, the people won't be offered any kind of other pathway. They won't be offered. It'll just be their problem to figure out like, okay, I know this is what you've been, you know, working in your whole life, but now it's your problem to find a completely different industry maybe a completely different city and state that you can't afford to move to. And I, you know, I thought that was a fair point. I was like, yeah, that, that does need to be part of the conversation. And, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. Some, I think some industries it's easier to do for others, like for, off- hmm. for offshore oil and gas, like there are ways in which you can kind of have systems to support people to train, to do offshore wind or offshore solar. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of activity on that, for example, in Aberdeen. Um hmm. But you do need systems to support that. And there are some things where it's going to be harder. Like, And we've seen an energy transition. And the UK has actually got a really good example of that, of like an energy transition that did not work and has left decades of inequality. So when mm. Thatcher closed down the coal mines in the 80s in the UK, you know, she didn't do it for climate reasons. Sometimes people try and spin it as that, but that's not what she was doing it for. Mm. Uh, but they didn't do it in a very good way at all. And you can still see, like, you saw those maps at one point during the pandemic of, like, impacts of COVID. And the areas that were kind of red for, like, the worst impacted were the same areas that had been coal areas. Um, Because, you know, decades, and this this happens with all sorts of other health and inequality data. You're like, oh, that's interesting. It's mapping a particular way. Well, it maps, (laughs) like, how we did a really bad energy transition. And I think that's a warning to the whole world about how we have to make sure it's a just transition and that we support people. And one of the things that's been like I thought has been really interesting recently is, you know, all these things with like companies saying, I'm gonna buy a forest and we'll have like my company forest, and then if you buy my product, it'll be carbon neutral because I'm offsetting it with my forest. And right. so you're getting dairy farmers in Wales being rung up saying, Oh, we want to buy your land and turn it into a forest. And they're yeah. like, mm, well, we've got centuries of being dairy farmers and this is a challenge to our culture. And, you know, like vegans are like, yes, definitely close down dairy farms and build mm. forests. And I'm like, yeah, we do. We do. Like looking at the numbers, we need to turn a lot of land that's currently used for grazing cattle into, into land to grow forests. But we can't do it in a kind of like uh, some businessman in a beer company in a city is ringing up someone in the countryside saying, I'm going to change centuries of culture with my forest. Uh, Like it has to be done with those communities. You have to be thinking about how you're going to grow really good forestry jobs in the area and help people have an identity around forestry in their area. You know, you can't just like carpet a whole part of the country with a new industry. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, Ella, I was I wondered if you wanted to talk about in terms of visioning and picturing the future, you're involved with this sea monster project, which if I understand correctly, has a bit of that in it, has a bit of like imagining the future. <laughs> yeah. It has a lot and, of imagining the future. Also lots of yeah. artistic renders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it's a kind of collaborative art science 
uh, engineering, maths, architecture project, which is bringing together, uh, it's part of Unboxed, which is supposed to be uh, an expression of creativity in Mm. the UK. But um, our project is reimagining an old oil rig, which has come off the North Sea, and we're turning it into a public art installation, um, which features lots of renewable energy technologies um it's got a massive waterfall coming off the side it's got a garden at the top that people can explore there's going to be all sorts of kind of community outreach events we're trying to at the moment develop lots of educational programs so that kids and young people and anyone actually can kind of engage with the content even if they can't physically be there because it's in western supermare um and yeah we're hoping that people will be able to come on board this behemoth of uh, our ancient fossil fuel infrastructure and see how it can be something different uh, and, you know, go from that old way of doing things to something new that incorporates and respects those traditions and histories and cultures. It's not saying, um, not trying to erase the benefit that fossil fuel infrastructure has brought to us as a society. We can't ignore that. Um, Mm. But we also need to recognise that we need to move beyond that and turn it into something better and greener. So that's that's the idea. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Well, you have to come visit. I will, definitely. um, Something that I've kind of had my eye on the last years is like looking at how old fossil fuel infrastructure gets used, like gets cleaned up and turned into something really posh like there's all there's this coal drops yard um shopping center near king's cross and these old gasometers the old gas holding gas storage spaces that have been turned into luxury flats that or the <laughs> battersea power station um yeah. which are now like some of the most expensive property in london and like those were built there back in the day because that's where the poor people lived and they couldn't argue against the politicians to have something as pollute like you hate you wouldn't want to live near battersea power station like when there used to be a bas- there used to be gas works at battersea that had this huge explosion in the 19th century that was really controversial mm. like it was a dangerous place to live because it had all this stuff and now it's all cleaned up and like polished people are like oh this is a nice like industrial chic aesthetic beautiful irony and and it's become and then also it becomes like in a way of excluding the communities that like used to live around there because now it's like incredibly expensive to live like one of the most expensive parts of of places to buy property in the world is like Mm. the Battersea power station or around king's cross gasometers or something and like i think we could you know those like those gasometers could have been there was like there was a project at ucl that was like at one point was looking at um the king's cross ones being turned into a park and like using the old infrastructure tenants like a skater park and that battersea power station at one point was going to be an eco uh museum or something like there are oh, wow. other things that you can do with this stuff than turn it into luxury flats <laughs> and like it's another side of that just transition is like maybe we could reclaim it like all these power old uh, petrol stations like when cars go electric we won't have these power- petrol stations that could be a community resource. Like, what are we going to do with them? Or are we going to sell them off for profit? Just... Money talks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, uh, well, hopefully the former and not the latter. But, yeah, it seems in historical terms that generally luxury flats seem to win. <laughs> but the oil oh, rig stuff is fascinating because there's all those sorts of different things that might actually be useful for them because actually having – underwater infrastructure could be scientifically useful or ecologically useful or yeah oh absolutely and you know you need to use the same technology to drill big offshore wind turbines into the seabed as you do for uh oil rigs it depends obviously where uh where you're putting them but yeah those sorts of technologies are universally applicable in the energy offshore energy industry regardless of whether they're clean or not Hmm. 
So speaking of, I'm going to, I'm going to transition us here a little bit. (laughs) Speaking of um, the kind of history of the fossil uh, fuel centered infrastructure that has kind of, you know, built our modern world that we're now hopefully starting to transition away from. Alice, you've written a very nice book on that history that includes the history of the technology and the history of how people have used it. The history of climate science is also intertwined in there in your book, uh, which I see you've got on your shelf there, the, our, our biggest experiment. But along with the Superior, which is that the Angela Saini book? Is that it does the, happen to be on my pile. Yeah. They're part, they're part, yeah. yeah, they're uh, they're partly my pile of books that I use to prop up my laptop when I'm um, doing talks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really good one too, the um, Angela Saini book. Um, I found that one really compelling. But anyway, let's talk about your book. Um, so, <laughs> so it's a it's a really uh, fascinating project, and I appreciated the fact that you you went into a lot of detail about. You know, for example, it's relatively easy for for me, and I've done this to sit here and say like, uh, oh well, the the scientists have known about climate change and global warming since the Victorian era, you know, this is old science. And one of the things that you helped me appreciate that you pulled out of the the history a bit was like, well, yes, the idea was out there, but it wasn't necessarily like accepted right away, right? It was met with what one could argue is perhaps an appropriate level of like, well, that's one hypothesis, but there's not enough evidence and data yet. So we need to to think about this. You know, it's kind of... um, if you if you talk to a hardcore climate skeptic uh, or denier, we, as we might call them, you know they uh, they might say like, well, we we haven't uh, we need to investigate other hypotheses and like, yeah, that was done. That's the part that was done back in the eighteen hundreds, nineteen early nineteen hundreds. You know, like all the the alternative explanations have all been thoroughly tested. But that, that was something that I appreciated from from your work was that yeah, the ideas are are old, but it's not like the scientific community was accepting those ideas about fossil fuel burning leading to climate change right away you know it was it was a hypothesis and that it has taken many decades to continue to gather evidence and now there's just mountains and mountains and mountains of evidence that yeah if you put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere you get more energy down here at the surface it goes into the climate system and uh climate change ensues because that energy doesn't go away so yeah i uh i wanted to talk about your kind of experience of of writing the the book so how did you decide to do it like what got you started on that project uh well I guess at one point I kind of did think oh I'm going to write a book helping people realize how old it is because I'd go around saying we've known about this since the 1850s and then I did like think actually no it's more complicated mm-hmm. than that so I could take people on mm-hmm. that journey that you just described of sort of like actually it, it took a bit longer for people to to get through. you know they had to test it they did the scientific work of testing it and being skeptical yeah. Um, yeah. it was pretty established by you know the 1950s and then like another stage of establishment by the 1970s and that was still quite a long time ago <laughs> you know, like yeah. uh, they're still longer than a lot of us will have been alive so that's i still think that's like it's old you know um even if it's it not is. 1850s old and like the origins of it do date back from the 1850s um i got interested in it i think i did a project when i was an academic which involved having to look at kind of climate change in the round like everything about I was helping run a, a mm. course for undergraduates that was like climate change 101 so taking mm. in like engineering perspectives and atmospheric science perspectives and public health and so I had everything. to be a kind of like refresher of like what I thought I knew about climate change yeah. um and you know I'd read all the scientific data and I found that that was 
really good. It get, took me so far. It made me very depressed, <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. it, it told me a lot of things. Um, but I had loads of questions. And so things like um, this really famous graph, I'm sure most of your listeners know about the Keeling curve of like measuring carbon dioxide uh, concentration in the atmosphere. Um, you know, people talk about how much it goes up every year. Um, mm-hmm. And I looked at that graph and saw that it started in the late 1950s. And I was like, who was studying this in the 1950s? And why has this research been going on since the 19- Who has managed to have a grant for research that's lasted since the 1950s? I was like, you know, I come from a science policy perspective. I was like, well done. Um, I was like, and also, who's this Keeling guy? Why do we call it Keeling? Like, who, yeah. who was looking at this? And so I was like, oh, I left me all these questions, which the science itself wasn't going to answer because it was very understandably busy measuring carbon dioxide levels. Um, so I started reading around the history and I was like, there are some great stories in this. There are like some amazing people, some of whom did some really silly things like see whether carbon dioxide traps the heat, the sunlight, the heat. Like it started off by people just messing around doing stuff they no one thought was an important scientific work at the time. Like up until like the 1930s really anyone who was studying this stuff did it on the side and was doing mm. it probably because it wasn't like important scientific work it was like a hobby and then as the kind of evidence particularly around world war ii as the evidence kind of started to mount up and people who were measuring glaciers were like they're really shrinking quite quickly um mm. the people kind of took it more seriously and so from the 1950s you start to see work like the keeling work being funded deliberately to study it i was like these are really interesting people and there's just like loads of interesting stories so i used to do um I got together some people to do a walking tour um, in London. So like when people go on a walking tour of London about Shakespeare or Dickens, we did a very geeky one, which was about energy policy, um, <laughs> which lots of people did come to. It was regularly sold out. Somebody even once booked us for their stag do. Wow. Um, <laughs> they didn't tell us that until they turned up. They were like, yeah, we're here for the stag do. And we what, were like, all with t-shirts what? with some guy's face on and silly hats. <laughs> yeah, they, they were engineers, I think. Anyway, <laughs> they naturally. Um, I don't think it was their entire stag do. I think it was just one bit of it. Anyway, um, we did this walking tour which we started from Tate Modern which is an old oil powered electric electricity power station and we'd walk along the river we'd go down onto the embankment and we'd talk about flooding but we'd also talk about the building of the embankment and the huge environmental policy that was done in the Victorian era to to build the embankment and deal with what was known as the great stink and the the river pollution Hmm. and then we'd go up and walk along by Shell HQ and I'd tell the story of how Shell used to sell shells and became from that this massive be a moth of, a, of an oil industry oh, and then we right. adore company and then we cross the river and end up at the old offices of the department of energy and climate change and we'd finish there and we'd say to people right what what messages do you want to give the policymakers at department of energy and climate change what do you want to tell them and we do these on sunday afternoons and we chalk up our demands on the floor so i sometimes think there must have been these civil servants that would arrive on monday mornings every now and again i'd be like why has someone written insulation outside (laughs) 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 Um, Uh, but yeah we do this a whole new meaning these days well (laughs) yeah (laughs) this was like five ten years ago so it was a slightly different uh political context to insulate um but yeah we I, I kind of got a bug for telling those stories and people mm. would tell me more ones because they'd be like, oh, you told this story on this tour. Do you want to know about this or whatever? Um, and I thought this could make a good book. It could be a story that's bigger than London. And like, um, it yeah. would be something that I think a lot of climate people want to know their history, but also people who aren't climate people. I think some of them, it's a good way into it because mm. not yeah, everybody such a good is going to be interested by like a graph. Like the stories are sometimes mm. what people need. Yeah, and that's yeah, how you definitely. communicate with people effectively. Like, if you want to really speak to somebody, you have to talk to them in a way that 
is meaningful and emotional and engaging and so often that is narrative and storytelling no one yeah like you say no one really wants to look at graphs as a way of understanding things apart from you know very few people like nerds <laughs> nerds, <laughs> nerds like us but I love yeah. a graph I often think a graph is a story like you know yeah it tells something yeah. often over time it depends on what you're often people are scared of them though I think because of their you know traumatic childhood <laughs> experiences with graphs yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I was just picturing first, I want to go on that tour. That sounds amazing. That sounds I mean, I, like, I've stopped. You know. I was doing them occasionally, obviously stopped during the pandemic, but I'm up for doing yeah. the odd one again because they are. Um, so if anybody wants to book me for <laughs> their stag do's or um, <laughs> office days yeah. out, they work for a very good, you know, they're great for, for an office bonding activity because you, you walk along and then you stop and you have a little story and then you walk along and you can talk to each other. Yeah. Um, I don't do them very often because I, I, you know, there are other things I have to do. But I, sure. they're, they're quite yeah. good fun, and I, have, I would, I'm up for doing them again now. Things are opening up a bit from the pandemic. Nice, I would love that. Well, you heard it, you heard it here first, folks. You can now start booking Alice for, <laughs> for those walking tours. And when you talked about standing outside of the Department of Energy and Climate Change. For some reason, I thought you were going to say that you, that you were all just going to shout them at the windows, like you just shout, them, literally shout them at the building. But drawing Sunday afternoons is a, is a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. Yeah, it's a better idea. I'd like to think that some of the civil servants would get to work on Monday and see that and go, "Yep, that's fair. <laughs> that's true." Any any one civil servant doesn't have a whole lot of power to you know push things in that direction, I guess. But you know, I would I would like to think there was some sympathetic uh, people walking by and saying, "Yeah, that's that's fair." um that's really cool yeah i so the book you kind of one of the stories is uh roger ravel you talk about ravel's big geophysical experiment you know how we built systems technologies and deeply embedded cultures for the burning of coal gas and oil at scale so what did you learn about R ravel what uh because he he was an interesting character as part of the story wasn't he yeah i think he's a really interesting character he was basically the guy in the 50s who looked back there were quite a few people in the 50s who started looking back on these sort of early studies of co2 and were like mm, this is an issue we should study it and he was the one who really fought for funding for it so he's sometimes known as like the grandfather of climate science hmm. um he also taught al gore at university he's the person who introduced al gore to the climate crisis so hmm. he you know deserves some credit in political history for that as well yeah. um and is kind of infamous for that he was he became a target for climate skeptics later in life because there are a lot of people mm. who thought ah oh, if we can kind of make roger Avell look a particular way this will help us neutralize al gore as a political activist mm. um but you know he was a really important scientific scientist and scientist what americans call science administrator which sounds uh, that's in the UK. People are like, "Oh, like an administrator is really junior," but like it, he he like ran large parts of science. He was really good at getting funding, and I think you know he he was the person who got uh, was really key to getting funding for that healing research to get kicked off yeah. the ground. Um, and I think like modern climate science kind of owes him a, a big debt for like the the fact that he he managed to mobilize funds particularly around the international geophysical year he saw that as an opportunity mm. for new geophysics research um to look into this thing that he thought like we really needed to study a bit more um but at first he just thought it was interesting science like he didn't um he i don't think he really saw it as this like this giant political crisis it was going to become mm. he thought you know he said we're currently so he briefed congress on the issue of carbon dioxide and global warming in the, the mid to late 1950s, um, you know, that early. This is what I said, like, you know, 1950s is still quite a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's still, it's yeah. still incredible that Congress was briefed on this issue in, you know, the, the mid to late 50s. And he briefed them and he said, 
um, yeah, we're conducting this grand geophysical experiment on the Earth, the like of which we've never seen before because we've never burnt this much carbon dioxide before for burning, we never burnt so much fossil fuels as, as, mm-hmm. as we are now. But we wouldn't ever see in the future because for him in the in the late 50s, he was like, well, nuclear power is just going to cut. Like, why would you burn fossil fuels anyway? It's really polluting even if you don't know about mm-hmm. climate change. It's a lot of trouble to break open the ground. Like for him, a kind of techno-optimist scientist in the 1950s in the US, he was like, yeah, obviously it's going to be nuclear. So he was like, well, there's this weird blip in human society where we're burning fossil fuels enough for like some glaciers to melt and we're a bit worried about it, but it's not going to be like a massive issue, but we should study it mm-hmm. before it changes again. Um, <laughs> and mm-hmm. as the decades rolled on and he saw it not changing, I think his attitude to it did Um, but he wanted to make sure that people didn't feel despair I think this is something that a lot of climate scientists will recognize today you know it was very different for him working in the the early 80s you know 70s or 80s you like the concept of like how despairing you might be is different then to now but he was still worried that if he just said everything's gonna be awful people would just switch off and give in to that yeah, future yeah i think that's when you talk about visioning earlier i think one of the and you talked about kind of pragmatic optimism for me one of the reasons why i think we have to hold on to some of those optimistic visions is that if we don't we give in to the yeah we will create that dystopia by believing in it and if we believe in a slightly better future then we have a chance to create them and, you know we can't but basically you know by giving in to, to doom and gloom i think we're just sort of giving in to, to large numbers of people suffering and for me that's like one of the reasons we have to keep hold of these and i think Ravel felt that a bit too so he quite yeah. in the in the early 80s there was this very big climate report in the US that came out, it was a very politically important climate report. And he gave a line to um, the press where he said, we're not flashing a red light yet. It's still an amber light. And this was spun by the press as like, it's fine. It's just an amber light. And what he meant was like, we need to, you know, we're worried about the red light happening. Like, and it's, it's yeah. that slipperiness that I think a lot, any of us who work in climate change totally recognise. It's like, you don't want to say it's all over because it isn't a simple win or lose it, it's a sort of slight slope that you slide down you know and he sort of how you manage your position on that and communicate it to other people is really tricky and I, I think sometimes when I was reading stuff that he said particularly in the 80s and 90s it was like oh you're so politically naive and this is one of the problems we're, we're one of the reasons we're in these problems and then I came around to it and be like no I think that's a totally reasonable thing for a scientist to say in the 80s um mm. uh, and it's uh, the yeah. problem is more that his words like this were spun like that that there were people who wanted to spin it as much as that he said yes. that he's made out as this great hero and i don't think he's straightforwardly a hero i think he's more complicated than that but i, I wouldn't say he's a villain either at all what do you think adds the complexity just the being naive or is it something else or well, when you when you say it's not a straightforward story what what's some of the sources of that complexity well i just think i mean it's the it's the context around him that is is quite complicated and the fact that it's not it's not easy just to say to be able to say i guess it's that it's not easy to say it's all gonna it's not as simple as saying it's all gonna be all all right or it's all gonna be terrible because we're talking about an uncertainty of different futures that could be out there and he wants he wanted to make people feel that you know he was saying that we've got the solutions we can tackle it I want you to be on board with me in that. Uh, mm. And that got spun as from people taking those words saying, oh, you don't yeah. need to do anything. And I, I, right. you know, I think it's important that scientists are aware of how their language could be spun and think carefully about it. But at the same time, I don't think it's fair to blame them simply if, if, yeah. Um, yeah. if they are spun like that. Because at the end of the day, I think you said it was the Wall Street Journal who, who did this, who did some of the spinning, if I remember right from, from your book. But yeah, at the end of the day, you're not going to control what a paper like that will will write and how they will spin it. That's going to be, they're going to, if they want to spin it, they'll find a way. 
they'll find a way to spin it, unfortunately. So yeah, I think you're right that, yeah, it's good, good as a scientist to try to be careful about how you communicate, but we can't put all of that on, you know, the, the scientist. There, there's a, I like the word context that you brought up there. I thought that was really good. Yeah. There's a context in which the scientists are operating and which the rest of us are operating as well. I also like that you, you mentioned this point about, um, I'm going through and kind of looking at things I highlighted. And one of them was you said steam power grew up drenched in the prosperity that slavery and colonialism offered Europeans in the 18th century. So that we have to recognize that that's part of the context as, as well for this in terms of why uh, like the UK and the U S and in particular and other Western countries were able to kind of ride this uh Roller, not a roller coaster. Roller coaster is not a good analogy, but you know, to take off in this way, uh, because the kind of framework was set by colonialism and slavery and and exploitation. Um, so that must have been that's always a challenging thing to engage with and to kind of grapple with the reality of that, right? So, does anything in particular strike you about that, or that comes comes to mind now as we're talking about it about that that part of the context? Well, it was just that it was it was really dominant in the history. Like I went into it with that kind of campaigner's line that climate change and colonialism are intertwined. And I was like, well, I kind of believe that I can see how that plays out today in terms of mm. our politics around like conversations about loss and damage and climate reparations and things. And I was like, cur- you know, taking a historical curiosity to like, how well did that play out in the history? Like, is it accurate to say it in history? And yes, mm. it is very accurate to say it in history. It's like, yeah. wow. Um, just every single type of key technology for building the fossil fuel age seemed to, particularly in the 19th century, but you can see things, things playing out in different ways in the 20th century with the different sort of shapes of, of colonialism in the 20th century. It was just like, for example, trains, um, you know, Britain likes to go on about how it built the trains for India. Well, it built them in a particular way that would serve British interests. And it was about mm. moving cotton around, you know, uh, another really example, good example is before that in um, steam ships, like the first steamships were, were trialed kind of around, like sort of played with some ideas in, in France and Britain and then trialed around New York. And they were passenger trips in New York State, uh, but they knew that the real money could be made going down the Mississippi. Hmm. And it was all about movement of cotton. And one of the first things that they were utilized for as well was for uh, taking troops to colonize the interior of the states. And the fact that people could move through first steamships and steam trains allowed for this this extra sort of stage of colonialism uh, in, in the US, which as a Brit, I hadn't really been so aware of, you know, I was sort of like, oh, the Europeans went over and colonized America in, in you know, the time of Shakespeare and, and, and then they sort of spread. And I knew, knew about kind of cowboys and Indians on films and things. So I was like, oh, no, there's this whole other stage of kind of, sp- of spread of, of white people across the U.S. And really horrific stories. Um, but no, there's a great book. It's actually on my pile of books called Empire's Tracks, um, which is a book about uh, the building of the American railways and particularly the way in which Chinese labor was involved in that and also talking about kind of the relationship with indigenous communities. I, there's loads of stuff I couldn't even mention in my book, but it's just so interesting about how those things are intertwined and how much, you know, it was colonialism kind of gave money to various countries to be able to utilize fossil fuels and develop them and then gave them more money which added to you know great greater kind of inequalities of, of power across the world um but yeah it's all wrapped up together like fossil fuels and colonialism totally wrapped up together yeah and kind of yeah supporting each other kind of exacerbating each other a bit yeah i'm just going through a little bit now we don't have to march through the whole whole book necessarily but 
Um, yeah, I really appreciated the context that you gave. You have a chapter on whaling and the whaling industry. And, I got so into um, whaling. I discovered that old ancestor of mine was a whaler, and I was like, I was like reading this. I was like, oh, that's my great 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 grandfather. Who he apparently he lost all his money trying to establish a, um, a some kind of like community in very south. New Zealand, which is not a good place. To, the Polynesians had already decided this was not a good place to have a community, but he tried. Uh, so I'm no longer, unfortunately, I'm not, I'm not the heir to a whale oil fortune. But, um, <laughs> I was like, wow, this is like, it was weird to have this personal connection to it. And it's just so gruesome. Oh yeah. The images you see are horrific, aren't they? Like the ones at South Georgia before yes. the whaling stations were shut down. God, the, you know, seas of red, horrible. <laughs> yeah. I know. And it like, it went on for ages and like, it's, it's not just like, like there was this sort of story that kind of uh, fossil fuel oils saved the whale uh, and that we stopped burning whale oil to um, light our homes because we used uh, fossil fuels instead. But the thing is that fossil fuels fueled boats to go and hunt even more whales and we just turned them into domestic products like soap and oh, right. ice cream and paint. Mm, and delicious. Yeah, um there's some great books on the whale industry that i read and i was just like oh wow they're just you just kind of get it's very easy to get lost in it but i think it it shows how kind of problematic the energy industry was even before fossil fuels got involved and i definitely think that the oil industry one of the things i definitely learned was that the oil industry was super problematic even before climate change became an observable issue and like if we had built our energy industry in a different way i think we would have been able to handle the challenge of climate change probably more easily like one of the reasons why we've had all these problems with tackling climate change is that there's a lot of power wrapped up in the fossil fuel industry in a and that power is structured in in quite problematic ways and like it didn't have to be that way we could have we could have had a very different form of oil industry and maybe we would have tackled climate change quicker if we had Mm. done that can I uh, can I awkwardly interrupt? My son's school is calling. Can I leave you, Ellis and Ella? Can I leave you two to chat for a minute? Please be our <laughs> guest. Your, your <laughs> podcast now. Do do whatever you want, and I'll be right back. <laughs> Thank now you. we shall commandeer the the reins. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, a really interesting one. It comes back to the sort of reimagining, isn't it? There's so many what ifs in the history of climate where you can you can interject at any particular point to say oh what if we'd recognize that or what if we'd really turn that into to action at that point um yeah it's it's fascinating was there anything in particular that you that really struck you as being a missed opportunity or was that the whole whole exercise <laughs> i think there were lots of ways where you're like yeah, I did a podcast a couple of years ago where some the whole he, he journalist had this great idea of like, can we go back in time and like stop climate change? And like, where would you go? <laughs> sort of like, well, nice. there's various different spots we might go. And I, I definitely think there's um there were a lot of points where we didn't invest in renewables as early as we could have. Like wind technology, like wind electricity, dates back from uh, the 1880s and had become quite mature before World War Two. Like there were people doing what we might call big wind, oh, and right. there were various coincidences. Like basically, Russia done like big wind at scale just before the war and then the world war ii just kind of got in the way of that and then post-war um they decided not to invest in it the big wind turbine they had got destroyed i think during the war nobody really knows what happens to it i think it got used as a, a lookout point at one point uh, and then some americans tried to do big wind around the same time and again it got delayed by the war um and then they had a, a technical problem and then nuclear power came along and they were just like, it's not really worth it. And so it got delayed until the energy crisis in the 70s, but we could have done that a lot earlier. There were some really interesting projects before World War One on solar power and also things like electric freight. And they kind of 
kind of fell by the wayside because of the disruption of World War One. And something you really see with World War One is this huge acceleration of oil-based transport. So like at the turn of the century, people's idea of transport would have been that it was electrical and might well be powered by hydro. Like the first big electrical project in the world was Niagara and it was, you know, renewable energy and wow. hydro. And the first thing it powered was transport, it powered public transport. The first electrons down the line powered the, the local trams. And that was what people at the beginning of the 20th century were like, that's what transport would be. Certainly in cities, it'll be uh, public transport, it'll be electrical, and it might well be renewable. And by the end of World War One, you'd see this huge acceleration of oil-based land and air transport. And that is that is where a lot of our carbon emissions still come from. And it's one of the trickiest bits to decarbonize, particularly air transport. Yeah. Like, um, I can't necessarily have to do quite a lot of work to imagine a, an alternative uh, history where like we had electric flight maybe that might have been maybe this universe out there where they did that in, in the in the early 20th century but certainly some other patterns in terms of how we electrified transport on land might have been more of an option and also we might have done wind and solar and, and utilized other kind of what we might call renewables earlier and there was yeah. certainly a lot of missed opportunities in the energy crisis where people just kind of went back to they didn't decrease energy use they didn't invest in insulation they talked a lot about it yeah um there was some there was i think it was one of the reasons it gave it gave wind a bit of a kick but not as much as it could have and solar there were a load of missed opportunities so there's those sorts of things yeah um i guess one story i really that it's a bit of a sad story in some ways it's not necessarily a hopeful one but like at the there's this great story of this uh, journalist, Ida Tarbell, who at the beginning of the 20th century basically brought down big oil. Like oil, the oil industry, particularly in the US, was just Rockefeller. And there were a couple of upstarts in Europe that were doing different things in Russia. But he had his eye on them and he was like, I'm going to take over the world's oil. And she was like, I'm going to bring you down. And she totally bring, brought him down. Legend. To the extent that the US government um, had to like, you know, basically forced Rockefeller's company, Standard Oil, to break up into separate oil companies so they would he wouldn't have a monopoly. And everyone thought this was like the end of Rockefeller. And this and it's an inspiring thing if like this plucky investigative journalism, a journalist, a woman at the beginning of the 20th century brought down Rockefeller and brought down Big Oil. But the sting in that tale is that when they were broken up, actually those different components were much more powerful than the one had been on its own. And Rockefeller had been told to sell his shares and he kept his shares and they ended up tripling in value. Um, <laughs> and I mean, the, the descendants of Standard Oil are Exxon, Mobil, Chevron. Yeah. Um, it's not as if they lost power. And so, you know, when we talk about breaking up big oil now, I think the moral of that is it's not careful what you wish for. It's just like we have to make sure we think about what we build next and not just think that breaking it is enough. Yeah. We need to think about what's replacing it. And like, this is the thing about what future do we want? Yeah, you have to create something positive. You can't just rely on the no, 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 we don't like that. And that's traditionally what protest and activism gets associated with. Whereas you need to say no, 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 we don't want that. But you have to offer an alternative because otherwise, yeah, like like you've already said, there's no, there's no uh, way of imagining that future. And I think, yeah, something that I have been struck by in this conversation is that historical perspective must give you such a lot of insight into what's worked, what hasn't worked. And it's something that's, I think, quite um, unique. I don't think so many people have that background that means that they can evaluate, uh, I guess, I mean, policy, but climate change generally. I mean, you it's, it's history, it's science, it's storytelling. I mean, how did you come to get to this intersection where you're bringing together so many different things? Well, I'm weird in my undergrad degree is in history of science. 
I took a year out after school and didn't know what I wanted to do and ended up working at the Science Museum and then saw an advert for a degree in history of science at UCL and thought, oh, I kind of work in history of science because I work at the Science Museum. I'll try that. <laughs> and I loved it. <laughs> um, but that is, I'm a bit weird to have come from a history of science perspective from the get-go. So even when I worked in other areas of science policy, I, I would normally come through the historical lens. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I've been a bit of an activist for taking that historical lens to climate change, because um, it's just how I understand science. And I think it is, there are, there's a really interesting project at Cambridge that's uh, looking at like doing collecting more history about climate scientists. I think we'll see more and more. Uh, I mean, you know, I was drawing on scholarship from other people. There is there is work on this and I think we'll see more and more and um and I'd hope they're just reading the book to give people like enough of that perspective you don't need to have written the book or have done a degree to get that I think but I do think the history perspective does add something yeah um, totally. it's not like there's necessarily like clear lessons learned like I won't give you like top 10 things that history has taught us. I don't think history does teach you stuff. I don't think it teaches you a lesson. That's not really how history works. But I think spending some time looking up with, you know, with the historical characters, like seeing the decisions that people have made in the past, I think can help help us, you know, sharpen our ideas about what we might do in the future. Yeah, it's context. It gives you ideas of, I mean, you can definitely see where things go wrong. You can understand the root of particular decisions. And as we've proved in this conversation even I mean you can trace back the origins of things that are happening now all the way back to way way long ago like centuries ago and you can see the legacy of I mean we talked about the legacy of colonialism in our fossil fuel infrastructure but you know it could be the legacy of so many different things that are still uh causing buy-in or like complete lock-in now so as we were just talking about, what if we had had at the beginning of the century this electrified transport and instead we actually went down the oil-based route? But that's a legacy of of a decision that was made during the war that has then kind of propagated and we've ended up just being, well, it's too hard to change it. We might as well just stick with it. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting perspective to to apply to something like climate change because I think often we we focus either on the policy or on the science and it's it's interesting to, to broaden it out I think one thing you do and I saw again and again right in, in like I knew it in theory but then researching the book I just saw it again and again and again it's like some of these decisions were made quite badly or deliberately like someone was kind of messing with us you know because so you can just be like oh we've inherited this this is just the world that we've built I might as well live in it but you could be like no we've inherited a world that was built for bad reasons we should change it so a good example of this is like uh, how much dominance cars have in cities and like the idea of jaywalking was a big PR stunt set up by the automobile industry to like and they invested loads in it like to make people believe that jaywalking was the problem not the car wow. <laughs> and, like we need it's, I think it does us good to flip that on the head now that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to totally reject cars because there's lots of ways in which cars can be incredible technologies for, for certain contexts but like at the same time, it can make us question like car dominance in our cities or like the fact that we have the classic example in if anyone who's ever studied history of technology has to study this. It's like a classic study, which is how the refrigerator got its hum, which was the choice between electric fridges that hum and gas fridges that were actually more energy efficient at the time. Um, so now we're like got lots, we're having all these fights with like people about, oh, I don't want to get rid of my gas oven. And we're like, no, you need to go electric and the induction hobs are good. And like weirdly gas got to own cooking. But for a while in the 30s, gas tried to own cooling as well. 
Um, but they didn't win that fight because electricity was like, oh no, we want the kit. There was this sort of like fight over the kitchen between the electricity and the gas companies. And the electricity companies heavily invested in the idea of an electric fridge as like they invested in R and D so they had good products, but they also massively invested in PR. They paid for incredible adverts. So there was a half hour musical all colour rom com, which was an <laughs> advert about electric fridges that oh went out God. in the thirties and the States, which I've never seen, but has to be in an archive somewhere. And I would love someone to put it on the internet because or like next time I'm in the States, I'm gonna try and find if I can go to an archive in it because find it because I'm very curious about this. <laughs> but like that's one of the, and they invested in like they got trains to go around the whole of the US with people dressed up as pirates. They sent wow. a fridge to the Arctic. There was all sorts of like PR stunts. Wild. To make us think. And we know we've seen this with other things. I've like, seen a cooking we... on gas advert. Yeah, it's well, like got a wrap, the, the gas yeah. cooking hob wrap, which is just phenomenal. Oh, that's incredible. That's definitely worth Googling. I remember that that's one. That's on but YouTube. Like, they, they, they do is. date back since the beginning of the century as well. Like gas managed to convince us that you should cook on gas very, very well. But weirdly, electricity convinced us that we should refrigerate electrically and like as it turns out i'm glad we're electrical fridges because i don't have to worry about changing people's fridges like and these were just you know we get PR'd into thinking these things and we're used to that with a lot of domestic technology but I, and I, I mean that's one of the reasons why i think it's really important green tech doesn't just sit there going oh well we're right because we're clean and green and you're like no you do need to sell this you need yeah to yeah you can't PR. just piggyback on the back of it yeah. being an alternative that is more or less polluting um and you you have to actually <laughs> sell it unfortunately we live in a, a world where capitalism wins so but so many technological decisions just get made so badly like and i just also think i would like on a whim yeah, we'll get it all can get pushed along by PR and get kept pushed along by by kind of those patterns of consumer capitalism. Whereas I think particularly because we're faced with some very important technological decisions in the next decade in order to decarbonize ones that we have to make radical ones very rapidly. I think this is one of the reasons why it's really vital that policymakers you know, intervene a bit and be like, right, how can we do this? Like what we were talking about at the beginning about like, how can we include a diversity of voices and visioning mm, so we don't exactly. just go with what the rich people can afford to do? you know and buy yeah. into like that shouldn't be the thing that steers our technological development we need to think a little bit more broadly than that and i think that needs policymakers to intervene a bit definitely definitely so i'm back could y'all just repeat the last 30 minutes or so? <laughs> <laughs> no, i think thanks for being flexible don't let me cut you off ella if you were going somewhere else with that and, and uh, alice yeah i think we were kind of shifting towards thinking a bit more about like where you've come from and like your perspective and how you've arrived at where you are and all that kind of thing that sounds like something I'm really interested to hear how you got to, I mean, you you mentioned a bit about going to the science museum and then doing this history of science degree, but how did you get to where you are to this point where you're writing this book and co-directing possible and all of that? Um, So yeah, I started uh, working in the children's galleries at the science museum doing bubble shows. I can still make you some professional grade bubble mix if you ask nicely. Uh, If you ask very nicely, I'll put you in a bubble. Oh, wow. Uh, it's my party trick. It takes a lot of prep, though. Um, <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I used to do bubble shows at Science Museum and thought that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life because it was a lot of fun. And then realised I maybe could think beyond just what I wanted to do when I was 18. Um, so I ended up doing... I've always been quite into politics. Um, and so I ended up doing... After my undergrad, I did a... I studied uh, education policy and then I did a PhD in kind of the ways in which adults think about science when they're presenting it to kids. So 
I kind of looked at children's science media, but not from the perspective of the kids. The idea is like, what are those weird ideas that adults take when they give science to kids? And like, what weird ideas of kids and adults is like pulled up into that? This is a very long time ago. And then I was a lecturer at Imperial on their science communication masters, which was a lot of fun teaching people who wanted to be new scientist writers or filmmakers or museum workers or policy uh professionals and stuff uh, and then I worked in Sussex in their science policy unit similarly I taught on their master's in science policy which is very similar to the one in science communication but more on policy and then I was like I, I, I could by then I kind of got the climate bug I think probably a lot of your listeners understand this it's like that I used to have a colleague who said once you start looking at climate change you can't look away yeah and I was like it's like well, a car I'd... crash in slow motion yeah. <laughs> and like yeah. previously I'd been working on like health and climate and other environmental issues and technology like one of the advantages of doing science communication stuff is you have a really broad perspective, particularly the sort of roles I had at Imperial and Sussex. I could just look at a range of different topics and that was fun. But I just found myself more and more pulled to climate change. And with that, I found that the speed that academia was working in, in my areas was too slow. Like if mm. I'd been doing some other area of research, I think I might well have stayed, but I was just like, I can't wait three years for a paper to be published. Oh and goodness, like, things like the fact yeah. that I published in a journal called The Public Understanding of Science and it, was, it wasn't it was open access. I was like, I wait, I like, and how long, and it still is, like oh. I, I left academia nearly a decade ago and it still isn't open access. And I'm just like, oh I, I can't wait for this, this glacial movement. Like glaciers are moving very fast now. <laughs> They're moving faster than you. And I was like, I just thought, I, I still kind of sometimes think I'd like really go really like to go back to academia and there were lots of points where I was researching this book where I was like I wish I had more time to research it in detail and do more um like primary research rather yeah. than just sort of telling a large story and pulling these together um and I think my I think if it wasn't for the bleeding climate crisis my dream job would be being a historian somewhere in a university reading mm. books and getting lost in archives but annoyingly the climate crisis is a thing and I am too mm. impatient to do that so I moved to journalism yeah. um and then to campaigning and I really love working at Possible because we have that focus on taking practical positive action and I work with other people in the climate movement and they're always so depressed <laughs> and I'm like yes I'm just as depressed as you but then I go into work and we're doing something and that yeah. lifts my spirits a bit. And we often find when people leave or uh, when they start, they often sort of say that about working with us. It's like, oh, it's this rare job of working in climate change where you don't have to feel depressed all of the time. <laughs> um, I mean, we do feel depressed quite a lot of the time. That yeah. We work in climate change. That is the basis of our emotional state. But we do have an opportunity to try and make the world better. And I think I'm very lucky to have a job which lets me do that. Such an empowering yeah. thing to feel because you want to be able to do something. And I mean, I feel the same way when I'm confronted with all this information that people who work in climate are constantly, or even anyone who's just engaged in hearing about what's going on in our world. And feeling powerless is one of the most disheartening feelings. And even if it's just doing something small that feels better than doing nothing or feeling paralyzed with indecision or all of those those things that have probably afflicted afflicted us all at some point and being able to to turn that fear and uh, anger into action is such a, a unique opportunity to do uh, it must be a fantastic thing to do in your day job <laughs> something about writing the book though remind me like when I wrote when I started writing the book I thought I was going to end up being really depressed about how <laughs> we hadn't done enough and how you know studying all these things like the terrible human rights stuff pulled that's wrapped up in a lot of the history of fossil fuels and things 
And it was, there were some points where it was really, really depressing. Um, but I did end up feeling quite hopeful at the end in a kind of, or like feeling kind of, oh, hopeful is maybe not the right word, but there was something sort of heartening and strengthening about it. And I, and I, and I appreciate that lots of scientists will often feel that like, oh, I've just added this tiny bit of a point to a graph that no one's going to read. Like, well, it's still amazing we do that. Like, mm. actually, the amount of work that we have pulled together to learn about our world in such a relatively short period of time is incredible. Like yeah, modern climate huge. science is amazing. And writing this book really helped me. So writing this book really helped me remember like how how amazing modern climate science is because it let me sort of look at its growth and think about like from this tiny little experiment that a woman did on her windowsill in the 1850s to the IPCC report you know, those thousands of pages with all of those references for all of those hundreds of people that worked on it. Like, that's dazzling. That's amazing. And yes, it's not it enough is. for what we need because the scale of the challenge is so huge. But yes. that doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel quite proud. And also, we do have a huge amount of, we have a lot more power because we're armed with that knowledge. Sorry, I shouldn't mm. use, I've been talking about how we shouldn't use uh, military metaphors, particularly when there's a war going on. Well, yeah. we're, we're, you know, we're, we have that, we have that, um, that knowledge. And it's incredible to, to, we should hold on to that fact that we have it. And we, I think I know how incredibly isolating and depressing it can be to study, you know, so people have to like study the gradual melting of a, a glacier or something. But like that is still really important. And the world has got so much more power because we have that knowledge and we should hold yeah. on to that. Cause we could, it's not obvious. Like climate change is not obvious. And we could have, if it hadn't mm. been for loads of coincidences along the way, we wouldn't know at all. There's an alternative universe out there where nobody really, they're just sitting there going, weather's a bit weird. <laughs> yeah oh, that's really nice to hear honestly like as somebody kind of working in in the field who i sometimes do feel like i'm doing quite a small a very small part of it and uh and, and i am and that's fair and that's fine uh, but it can be a bit disheartening to feel like you're really not doing very much so i know a lot of our listeners will appreciate hearing that uh that perspective of don't forget you're part of a much larger and very impressive and very hopeful, ultimately, effort to try to understand the, the world we're living in. So, yeah, thank you, thank you for that. It was it was fun to listen to you talk about that because, like, your enthusiasm really shone through, and your enthusiasm comes through in the book as well. And you're clearly a, a talented historian and a talented writer because it's just shining, shining right through. And you you gave me a really clear, you know, picture of some of the historical context. Uh, and uh, but but like you said, by pulling the stories out of it. And by kind of making it making it relatable in that way, Thank I was you. kind of wondering. Oh yeah, uh, of course. I was kind of wondering, like, if we could talk about different things you've learned along the way, like what you learned about, what's well, something you learned about journalism, uh, getting involved with it, that maybe surprised you, or maybe you weren't totally expecting it, or it was just di different from what you were picturing. I was surprised that I could do it and that I enjoyed it. I kind of fell into it a bit. Mm. Um, so I'm dyslexic. I didn't know until I was finishing my degree. Like my teachers kind of said at school, you're probably dyslexic, but like mm. um, my mum's an English teacher and uh, I went to a school where a lot of people spoke English as a second language. So I was already at an advantage. So like I was already doing fine. Mm. And I knew that. And like the last thing anyone was going to bother about was getting me a dyslexia assessment. Um, mm. And when I went to university, um, it was slightly different class context. <laughs> um, so suddenly mm. I'm like, uh, surrounded by rich white people like me um and so it's kind of was a bit more notable uh and and I did start to think like these are these things that I've told myself I'm stupid for years and maybe actually I could learn that I'm not and so it was it was really useful for me to get this diagnosis and I had that throughout 
like my PhD and starting my academic career, mm. like knowing that helped me navigate that. But there's still a bit of me that was always like, you just can't write, Alice, you're a bit stupid. Um, mm. And sometimes I do, like when I'm writing, I quite often find myself lost for a particular word and that can interrupt my flow. And then I have quite bad short-term memory and then I forget where I was. And, mm. and I like, it's just standard stuff if you're dyslexic and I just have to tell myself that. But there was always this bit of me that's like, can't mm. write, you're a rubbish writer. And then people would ask me to write. I was like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> um, and yeah. in, ultimately I didn't love being a journalist. I was teaching at, while I was being a freelance journalist, I also had a part-time job teaching at city journalism school. And my students did love being journalists. They were, you know, they were students. They were about to become journalists. They were in a training college to do it. And also they were so good. They were just, they were so clever. <laughs> they were such good writers. And I was just like, I should get out of the way because I'm like <laughs> sitting there kind of getting freelance work that I quite like and it pays the rent and I do all right. But like these people could be brilliant at it and would love it. And I should kind of look for another job really where I mm. and I think I am better suited working in an organization I still do a fair bit of writing and I really enjoyed writing the book um and I was I quite often a big part of my job a possible is thinking about news hooks and creating stories you know like it's a different role you're not a journalist as a campaigner who's coming up with press but you are creating stories and looking for stories and looking for news hooks and there's a lot of things that are applicable uh, and similar and I think I'm just better suited in uh in an organization like that uh certainly at the moment I mean so, sometimes I think back I was like oh I really love that kind of like there's this there, there is this fun of like being a journalist where it's a little bit like being an academic as well you're like you believe in the truth and you're there to like mm. look for the truth and you're not necessarily trying to persuade people of a campaigning idea I don't always feel comfortable as a campaigner because I think a bit mm. of me is still an academic and just like has that alliance trying to, to be objective yeah I don't, I don't want to win <laughs> You know, like, I mean, most camp- especially in climate change, most campaigners definitely come from that perspective anyway. But like, it, there's a sort of slightly different vibe. Like, um, it's a different approach to politics, I suppose, that you have. Yeah. And I like that about journalism. And there's sort of like rooting out, like, what, you know, get the, you're like, can we can we root out the people in power that are doing something bad? Mm. <laughs> um, uh, and there is there is fun in that. Um, I can see why people like it. Uh, but yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think my main surprise was that I managed to do it. <laughs> Nice to do it. Yeah. No, you're clearly a very good writer. It's right there. The evidence is is right there on my PDF in front of, open on my other screen right here. Um, I was going to ask you what you learned about campaigning. You mentioned a little bit already that kind of difference in attitude. Is there anything else that surprised you about campaigning? I mean, there's a lot of sort of of small things about how NGOs work um, and sort of frustrations of managing kind of how institutions work and things. Mm. Um, I don't think anything that's surprising. I'm trying to think of a, a good example. Yeah, it doesn't have to be anything huge. Yeah, it could just be. I guess I'd say that one of the things that meant that I moved over to that and was one of the contributing factors in me leaving academia was that I was doing some work with campaigners as an academic. Yeah. They were like, like, come along and do some brainstorming with me. And I found that I was more intellectually stimulated by the conversations I was having with campaigners. And some of them had an awful lot more expertise than some of the academics. And I was like, I'm an academic because I like using my brain. I like my brain to be challenged uh, around problems Mm. and to accrue lots of knowledge and put it into clever places. And actually, 
it, this isn't true of academic academia everywhere but just bits that I was in I was like I will be more intellectually stimulated elsewhere and I found that in journalism and then I continue to find that in campaigning and I, I don't it's definitely not true of everybody I'm not saying that these people who are sitting in universities being stupid but and it wasn't that my colleagues were stupid in any way it was just that the structures of how we do academic academia with like the ways in which we do research funding and research publication and stuff just meant that ideas weren't being utilized or challenged or developed and there wasn't enough space for creativity compared mm. to the stuff that I, I do on a day-to-day level. And I'd say I am more intellectually challenged in my role at Possible than I was overall at Imperial. And you're like, Imperial is this great big, you know, it's meant to be the shiny, most intelligent place in the world. You know, they're the cleverest people in the country. Um, and they are, most of all. Like, I got to work some incredibly intelligent people. Like, some of my students, you'd be just like, wow. Uh, and you sort of have a meeting with somebody and be like, wow, you've totally run rings around me in this meeting. But um, mm. I get that more, I think, actually, with the various misfits that have ended up in climate campaigning. It's mm. really interesting. That reminds me of, um, you know, from a personal perspective, it's always kind of, for, for me anyway, I, I never really want to be the smartest person in the room because that, I mean, I want to be learning from the people that I'm that I'm with. Yeah. So, like, I, I want to be in more of that position where I can take in information and take in knowledge and kind of feel like I'm, I'm growing and, and learning. I mean, ultimately I do want to be somewhere where I'm, I'm hopefully useful, but uh, you know, that, you know, I, I can relate to that. And I would, I would kind of tell my students that as well. Like there was one student I had uh, at a, at a two-year college, which so that two-year college, there were loads of bright students there. This, this is not me putting down that two-year college at all, but there was somebody in my math class who was so far he was so advanced and he was just eating the material up that i'm like well you know you're by far the best student in all of your math classes and i think you should consider like you know i think you should consider going somewhere else and you know going going to somewhere like georgia tech or somewhere and like it'll probably kick your butt but it'll, you'll learn a lot and it'll, it'll be great because you'll uh, you'll be, be challenged and you'll really grow um so that, that just kind of reminded me of of that situation of like uh yeah, I don't know. You don't. You don't necessarily want to feel like you're the best in the room. You want to feel like you, you've got somewhere to. You've got some growth, some 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 room to grow. Yeah, that's really. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? I kind of. I feel like we dug into the book a lot, and we dug into you know your kind of pathway. We talked about the charity. We talked about the vision and that sort of thing. Is uh, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure that we discussed? Not particularly. Although I'm definitely going to be looking up for Ella's sea monster work when it when it comes out. <laughs> oh yeah. I'll <laughs> yeah. see you there. <laughs> see you at the sea monster. Exactly. And it's S E E monster. It's not not S E A monster for <laughs> anybody listening. And uh cool. Well this has been great. Thank you so much, Alice. Um anything else from you, Ella? No, I, I think we've we've question. covered a full full range. It's been really interesting and awesome to talk to you. It's- such a, a nice refreshing perspective you've got thanks for Absolutely. your question it's really great it's really nice to be asked about a range of different things i've done as well oh cool yeah nice talking to you thanks for coming take care and uh yeah we'll hopefully hear from you again in the future there you have it our conversation with alice bell you can find alice bell on twitter at alice bell hey well done you managed to get your name as your handle i'm at dan jones ocean ella Gilbert is at Dr. Underscore Gilbs with a Z. Yeah, and if you want to follow the podcast, it's at Climate Sci Pod. 
editing by Sean Williams Page. Thank you, Sean Williams Page. Audio engineering by Lillian Blair. Thank you, Lillian. And thanks to all of you for listening, downloading, subscribing, doing what you do, helping us to uh, keep the show going. It's good to know that the interest is out there. We got people listening, so that helps us keep going. That helps us continue. Like I said in the intro, we're still at about a monthly frequency. Is about what we can sustain right now. It's possible we might have to take a little hiatus in the summer. We're going to warn you about that. We're going to um, you know, let you know if that's something that's going to happen. And there might be some changes coming in the future, but, you know, don't panic. Everything will be fine. We will sort it out. We will do what we need to do. Uh, I'm going to keep this thing going as long as there's still interest and as long as I can, can feasibly do it. So yeah, thank you again for all, all your support and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Take care. Take care of yourselves. Be well. Look after your friends and loved ones. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>